We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Okay, ready? what you know and it's about a time when you get yourself in a I want to know something she said. I think about everyone you need. I'm holding it. Things are moving real now. I have you seen you wanting you. Hey. The tour ratio. Okay, though. The tour ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> You're a phenomenal person. I mean, you legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. Imagine putting yourself, every time you're on stage, this is what you're literally doing. You're putting yourself on this big pedestal or block to be judged. Yeah. And you're opening up a door to your life to strangers. Yeah. Part one, that that's nerve-wracking. The other thing is, this job is so crazy. If you're in a room in front of 100 people, you're in front of a room of 100 people with at least 100 problems apiece, and you're you're trying to ask in the universe to make all these people forget about those 100 problems apiece and come simultaneously together on a laugh at the exact same time. And, it's nerve And you, is, you alone in entertainment are up there basically naked. There's no lights, yeah, no smoke, no dancers, no drummers no helping you out. It's you and a mic. And when it ain't going good, you wish you could just go, it, 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 hit the drummer, let the drummer get some. Ain't no drummer. Talent is an amazing stand-up comedian who's been doing it forever. I've known him for a long time, ran into him in the airport in Atlanta, and I said, hey, Want to come on the show? And he said, hey, he loves talking about comedy. It's an amazing conversation about the craft of comedy. And he was there the night that Bernie Mac went off talking about I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. And I'm trying to get him to talk about who was the guy before who got scared off that stage. It's talent on Torre Show. You're working on a documentary yeah. about comedy, mm-hmm. and and you know those of him, those of us who've been watching comedy for a while, there's been a shift. There was a time when BET Comic View was the number one platform for Black comics. Wait, early eighties, early nineties, maybe late eighties into the nineties. And there was a certain kind of comedy that would work there, right? right? That would be a lot of like. White people do this, black people do this. Mm-hmm. And when Deaf Comedy Jam came, 
it got way more aggressive, way more edgy, way smarter. You know, they just seem to curate things differently. And that changed the whole game for black comedians. And that's what your documentary is talking about. Exactly. And it changed the dynamics of comedy as we know it. It never been the same again because back then, and when, when I look at it now, you don't know it when you live in it, but when you look back in hindsight, it's because that was a young, the youngest generation. Okay. You know, so when you look at Def Jam, even though it happened in 90, these guys were barely 30 years old. They were in their 20s, some of them teenagers. Like, even Chappelle was at the club 15, 16 years old. Right. You shouldn't be in the club, but he's in the club working his crap. And what happened is back then we called it, because there was so many of us around the country, it was simply called black comedy. Right? Now, fast forward after what I call the whole renaissance, and everything changes, and, and 50% of the comedy clubs close. Now it's just comedy. So when you look at the name on the title of the documentary, it's going to say, like, this is black comedy, but blacks can be crossed out. This uh-huh. is comedy. Because now it's not black comedy. Because if we look at our top earners in stand-up comedy, they just happen to be black. Kevin Hart is just the top comedian. Right. Cat Williams is just the top comedian. Right. You know, the Corey Holcombs, the Earthquakes, the everybody but else, Steve Harvey. See, all those see it's interesting because Kevin Hart to me seems you know, quote unquote, for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to be from black culture to get what he's doing. Right. But Kat is very much from black culture, mm-hmm. right? And I bet his audiences are like 90% black and we dig the whole pimp vibe. And right. just even his voice takes us back to like the hood right? where, you know, Kevin is doing something different and no, but Kevin's right. amazing, but he's doing something different, right? Exactly. They got their own lanes. Um, you may see a little bit of, uh, what we call culturized stuff from each different individual. But when you look at their audience and what they're actually talking about, because Cat came into the game, you're correct, with the whole pimp swagger thing. But if you look at Cat in the last five, eight years, Cat's been doing this to that that vibe and that you okay. know, that mantra and, and that characterization. Now, like the last one was called uh, World War Three or something like that. Yeah. So he, in his mind, he's dropping jewels. He's trying to drop information for everybody. Look at what's going on in society. Look at this country. Look at the politics and stuff like that. So he's gotten away from the whole smack a whole tribe, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> so you got away. So your point in the documentary and your point is that that Deaf Comedy Jam is a major turning point for black comics in that it, it made them more national, got more business, right? Changed it, the game. It's the, the single thing we can point at. At, at the beginning of that renaissance that made that force that hand because the re- comedy clubs didn't just close because like now pandemic time, we know why certain people closed. It wasn't like that. If you would, you had a business and you said, well, we not really doing the urban thing and a lot of black comics, whatever. Okay. When Def Jam popped after that first season, I mean, really popped in the whole, it was not the number one comedy show in America. It was the number one comedy show in the world. Right. HBO was international. Right. So, what it forced is if I have a club and I felt that way and I didn't have those black guys from the club, the people, the patrons were looking for where is that comedy? And you know what happened? We call them rooms. We started rooms, started a ton of rooms. Even in New York, we still got a 150 rooms. And rooms are not your traditional comedy club. It could be a soul food restaurant that doubles as a nightlife entertainment. It could be a lounge. 
It could be small theaters. There are rooms where you can go find that comedy you're looking for, that specific type of style of comedy, that youth, that that now in-your-face energy that we were talking about. So all those clubs in middle America were slowly closing because they didn't have it or they they, they couldn't get it or they didn't allow it. Because people could go to the rooms to find what they want. Exactly. Give the people Took what the they want. the business out of the club, put it over here. What was Deaf Comedy Jam doing that hadn't been done before that – because the, the sort of thing that people would talk about was different, edgier, smarter. Is it the way that they were curating? Is it who they were looking for? Well, I think it was a combination of a few things. You know, like when you're making a pot of gumbo, you know, you got recipe for stuff. Like, you got to look at the ingredients. The ingredients is first, like I said, the youth. There was this energetic youth. Hip-hop was peaking on the rise, making its move. So if, if you look at Def Jam, it's definitely fused with hip-hop. Sure. Right? Now you put the youth, the baggy clothes, how we used to rock the gear, and, and then fashion. That's in there, too, because all the black designers were popping at the same time. Yeah. You know, the D-Lows, the Shabazz brothers, the cross colors, you know, the Carl Kanais, the Walkerwares, all that was coming up, too. So it was a perfect storm. And who took hold of the perfect storm other than Stan Lathan and Russell Simmons? Right. So Russell put his hip-hop spin on the same thing he did with hip-hop. And Run DMC and, and Onyx and all those groups that came out of there, he put it on comedy. So I think the difference was all of that stuff there, and then when you sprinkle in, you're now seeing young people do this. So what are young people talking about? They're talking about the hip stuff. They're talking about the stuff that everybody's talking about here, walking down Broadway and down in the village and up in Harlem and Brooklyn. They're talking about that in-your-face stuff. Oh, my girl, this and that, blah, blah, blah. So when you go to a traditional comedy club, it seems slow to you. Yeah. If you watch Def Jam and then you go to a comedy club and go, guy gets up there, huh? Hi. No, Def Everybody's Jam like, come was, on, come on, was the dopest comedy yeah, night you've seen. It was a party. It, it was hard to go to Caroline's and compete with a night of Def. That would kill I'm you. I'm glad you said that because speaking of Caroline's, one of the smartest establishments we have in comedy today. They got it fast. In terms of including black and brown folks. Very fast. I think they were, they got on it definitely the fastest in New York, if not the fastest in the country. They got on it so fast, you know, before all the closings and stuff like that. And they were like, you know what? This thing is hot. We need a night. So they got smart. They said, we need an urban night. And it wasn't about to break up their system of bringing their headliners for the weekend. They got smart. We're going to take a Tuesday. We're going to take a Wednesday. Yeah, it's the middle of the week, but you know what? We're going to give whoever the hot DJ on the hottest radio, urban radio station in New York to be the host of it. And they're going to talk it up on their show every week, week in, week out, and we're going to pack the place. And it went from, you know, Caroline, they can squeeze 300 plus in it. It was like, okay, we're going to do one show. Next thing you know, uh, uh, Ed Lover's on the air. And Dr. Dre, they grab Ed Lover. Ed Lover gets on there. Now you're doing two shows on a Tuesday night. We're going to 7 and a 9.30, and they capitalize and capitalize. And then all of a sudden, you start to see the trend changing, and then Caroline was like, you know what? Call Tommy Davidson for a weekend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Get George Wallace in here for a weekend. Mm -hmm. Get so-and-so on. So now when you look at the roster, you start to see sprinkles of colors and ethnicities performing. Is there something else beside Deaf Comedy, after Deaf Comedy Jam, something else that happened in the world of comedy that changed things like Deaf Comedy Jam did? Well, it, it was just duplication of the same thing and different platforms. So 
when we talk about the perfect storm, Def Jam was the boom, right? But after the boom, you still got, even in war, you still got a couple of pap, 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 pap. So the pap, pap, paps was Comic View on BET. The pap, pap, paps was the Apollo Theater. The same way they would bring in musical acts, a comedian was performing every episode. Right. Then they did a spinoff show called the Apollo Comedy Hour, which was like Mad TV or Saturday Night Live, right? Then you got uh, Uptown Comedy Club on 125th. They got a show on Fox. So all of these things, you had all these outlets. And then uh, on the Uptown, at the end of every episode, this was very interesting, end of every episode, they ended the episodes with a snap battle, right? So you don't watch sketches, some live stand-up. And then at the end, they have a team of two against two or three against three. And Monterey Ivy, God bless the dead, he's hosting. And they're snapping back and forth. And the audience is judging who wins, right? Right. So here they go. Fast forward another season. They figure they want to get younger. You know, we're gonna we're gonna flex Alexander. We're gonna bring him up. Uh, Corwin, Tracy Morgan, Ronda Fowler. We got all Maceo. We got all these players. We're gonna bring up Monty's getting a little old. We're gonna kind of phase him out. So Monty was like, okay, now Monty, he's the original host before TV, and he happened to host when it went to TV. Now they're trying to age him out. So Monty takes, okay, I'm a writer. I'm a creator. Monty goes. And he takes the end part of the show and makes a whole nother thing out of it. He puts out Snaps books, about maybe eight, published eight books, because he had all of us who came up with the Snaps uh, when we were playing a dozen. So eight books. Then he got a record deal, did two CDs with rappers and comedians of East and West Coast snapping on, on wax, right? Then he went to HBO and got a, a special <laughs> deal for two of those. So wait, <laughs> tell me how you write a joke. I don't write. Um... I'm more like in comedy, you have different kind of comedians. You have people who learn to do this, and you have people who call to do this. The difference is the people who are called to do it, they're more naturalist. You know what I mean? Uh, the people who are methodically learning it, that's the difference in a comic and a comedian. A comedian is natural ability. So I don't write a joke. I, um, I talk about life, and I have topics and bullet points and stuff like that in my brain that it's just a matter of what day it is and what I'm going to talk about, you know, and, and I follow that blueprint for sort of like, you know, Jay-Z talks about, he don't write, he just go in the studio. It's like that type of thing. But a lot of my friends, they have writing books, they got joke books, something comes to mind, they write it down. I tried that my first year or two in comedy. First of all, I look back at it, I don't know what the hell I wrote. <laughs> and and I'm never, I could never read it the way I thought it when I wrote it, so I'm like, I just trashed the book. Then they said, hey, get you a little recorder. You go on stage, you put the recorder, put that down, and listen to it later, and that's how you formulate a joke. I bought 10 of those. I left all 10 in the club. Forgot them that night. <laughs> I said, this stuff ain't for me, because I was going against my natural So know, I could just give you a mic and an audience, and you could just go, because you're just going to talk about your life and throw in punchlines here and there, you're not going to, I have a written joke that I constructed. Right. It could be my life. It could be somebody else's life. It could be my my POV of what's going on. It could be anything. The only thing you tell a comic, a real comedian, you know, depending on where he's playing or where he's at, if there's any, because comedians, like, you don't know where they're going to go. Real comedians, you don't know. So you if don't there's know something where, you don't want to hear, you tell them that up front. You don't know where you're going to go. No one. So if you hire me, right, and you go, uh, <laughs> let's just say little people, 
you got little people at your your function, <laughs> and you'd be like, Jesus, I got a comedian coming in. I don't want him, you know, bothering these little people. You know, so you pull me to the side and say, hey, you, you, we're going to introduce you about 15 minutes. Give us about 20 minutes. Do your thing. Oh, yeah, my, my friends are here, you know. No. Hmm? Don't say the word midget. Don't. You don't, it, I prefer you don't even talk to them. Don't even bring it up. I'm like, okay, no problem. I got that stipulation, and I go up there, and I do everything around it. I won't touch on it because I know that's off limits. It's no different than doing a clean show versus a regular but show. You, you but you, when you go into a show, you don't necessarily know where it's going to go. You no. are, you're, you, that would scare the hell out of me not knowing where I'm. Even if I'm doing an interview, I don't know what the next question is. I'm, that nerves me out. But you're like, you're to. there's no net, no. and we're just flowing. You're supposed to be scared. You're supposed to be scared. Every time, yep. While you're up there. Every time. Right before you even get up there. Like, Monique. Uh, Monique takes a dump before every set. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Monique. Apologize in advance. I, I got to make a point. Monique. That's a thing with her. <laughs> Monique and I came up in this comedy thing together. We toured four years together with Def Comedy Jam on the tour. And she was very nervous. She, she's never been away from home. She's from Baltimore. And we we were real click, like brother and sister. So she was like, made sure we, our hotel rooms, when we checked in the hotel, I need to be a joining room. Them doors need to be open. I'm, she was just scary like that. And then every time, you know, they'd be like, okay, Monique, he's up there now. 15 minutes, you go up. She'd be like, okay. And she'll disappear. And I'm like, why do you always disappear? And she's like, I got to take a doo-doo. I got it. She said, if I don't do that before, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, But you're supposed to be scared. Even if you read Richard Pryor's book, Pryor Convictions, he says in there, he said, if I wasn't getting so high, I would have knew things were going wrong <laughs> because I stopped being nervous. He says, you're supposed to be nervous. When you stop being nervous, now it's time to get Why nervous. are you supposed to be nervous on It's that kind of job. Not, not, not on, it'll subside when you get up there. But, like, if I'm behind this curtain and you're like, okay, coming up there, I'm like, oh, man, listen. And then as soon as I get up there, 30 to 45 seconds, if I say that thing that makes the whole room laugh, I settle. And now we good. Now we rock. You're nervous because? It's a nerve-wracking job. Every, you, are you afraid of dying? You're Dying or bombing? Well, the same. Uh, it, it, Dying, dying. Are those, dying? Are those like, different? Yeah, we don't we don't call it dying, sir. <laughs> <laughs> we don't make jokes on midgets, God, and dying. Those three, those all like no. We um we call it bombing. Like you dying on stage, you bombing. You're you're afraid of so many things. Um, you know you're putting yourself. Imagine putting yourself every time you go on stage. This is what you're literally doing. You're putting yourself on this big pedestal of block to be judged. Yeah. And you're opening up a door to your life to strangers. Yeah. Part one, that, that's nerve-wracking. The other thing is, this job is so crazy. If you're in a room in front of 100 people, you're in front of a room of 100 people with at least 100 problems apiece. And you're, you're trying to ask in the universe to make all these people forget about those 100 problems apiece and come simultaneously together on a laugh at the exact same time. And, it's nerve-wracking. And you is you alone in entertainment mm -hmm. are up there basically naked. There's no lights, yeah, man. no smoke, no dancers, no, no drummer helping <laughs> you out. It's you 
and a mic. And when it ain't going good, you wish you could just go, it, 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 hit the drummer. Let the drummer get up. Ain't no drummer. Everybody and, just it, still doing this. But now, but but when you hit, it's involuntary. When I laugh, I, like I, I can't like, I don't plan to laugh. Like I clap because it's a, I'm supposed to clap. The song has ended, right? Right. But when you hit that punchline, I'm going to have an involuntary physical response right. that I cannot control. Exactly. And hopefully I have a follow-up thing to the laugh. So that's, that's, that's great comedy. Great comedy is like, they don't let you go. Like, yeah, yeah, if I, yeah, if yeah, I get my, a big laugh from you every whatever minutes, there's no, there's no thrill in that. it's got to be every like I'm 10 regular. seconds. Yeah. Right? You got to make me belly laugh every 10 seconds or so. Let me tell you something. I, uh, first time I've ever heard that was about 10 years ago. I'm playing the Uptown Comedy Club in Atlanta. And... This guy, who one of the owners, old white Jewish guy, and at the end of your thing, the end of your weekend, you go upstairs and he writes your check out and wants some cash, you know, settles up. And I go up there and he's writing in the book and doing the numbers and everything. And I'm like, hey, man, it was a cool weekend, man. We had a good time, whatever. And he just looked at me and said, man, he said, man, your LPS is crazy. Laugh per second. Never heard it in my life. I've been doing comedy at that point going on 20 years. And he's that serious, just talking like it's regular English, that the LPS and I'm, and it's everything in me. Don't ask him. You, you're supposed to know what it is. But the project kid in me had to had to know. What's, what's LPS? He's like, oh, your last per second. Like, I'm listening to you every few seconds. Uh, uh, uh. And I'm sitting there just staring at him like, yeah, okay, cool. Thank you. Thank you. And I left out of there and I all night I just kept playing it in my head, like, wow, I never knew anybody sitting back doing that. Like, who the hell's sitting there going, every 25, 30 seconds? Like, but, I never knew nobody was But you that. are thinking about, I want to make, like, you know, hit the punchline, hit the punchline, right? So every, mm -hmm. you, your your mind is thinking of, like, you know, hit that line that's going to make them laugh, right. you know, every few seconds. Yeah, and then when you when you do it with time, from the beginning, it, it, I will say this, it's not as nerve-wracking as, the, like, say, the first 10 years. Right, the next ten are a little less, and the next ten are a little less, a little less, because you start to learn it so much to a point where you're doing stuff you didn't do in the first ten. Like the first ten, it's all a crapshoot. It's all potluck. It's all a, a raffle, if you will. Ten years the first, for ten years. Oh, it's going to take ten. Sometimes it takes fifteen years for a person to what we call find themselves. You oh. think you're going to be this guy, right? And then five years, people look at you. Now you transform to this guy, and then you transform until you find yourself. It won't stop. And then when it, you'll know because it stops and you settle. But as you become what we call a veteran in it, now when I'm on stage, <laughs> I, I already assume myself, you know, I'm my, my biggest fan, so I already assume I'm going to do well, right? <laughs> so now while I'm up there trying to do well, the veteran in me is looking at my audience trying to find those people that's trying not to laugh. Right. Because talent, <laughs> the name talent, unfortunately, your reputation precedes you city to city. So the people, you know, they give me love. But my peers and everybody, they're trying to throw the kitchen sink in front of me and then say, yeah, now still do what it is they saying you do, right? So when I'm on stage, I'm trying to find that guy or girl like this, like with that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not going to laugh. Yeah. And it's going to make me go harder. And then once I get that laugh, it's crazy. Like Michael Jordan when they do this, hit right. all them threes and we live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. 
My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. The distinction you made before about comics, I think about that in terms of this way, that there are some people who want and need precise crafted material, right? That Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, who think about every word choice, every pause, it's very crafted. And then there's people who are just funny motherfuckers. Like Bernie Mac could just read the phone book and you'd be dying laughing. And it's usually... You're one or the other. That's true. Like some guys got the luck of cadence, you know. Uh, we talked about Cat. Cat has a cadence. Bernie had a cadence. It's like, just his voice yeah, is Steve funny. Harvey has a cadence. Like these guys have cadences that they could, like you said, they could read a, a notebook or somebody's journal and it's hilarious. Then you got the guys like Chris Rock who put the work in. Um, I respect Chris like probably the most out of everybody right now because I bore witness to the work, him and Chappelle and like Bill Burr and David Tell, I bore witness to the work those guys put in. Like those guys was in the club. We, me and my, 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 my manager here, my road manager, we tell him laughing on the way here because we're talking about one guy who's, these guys today, oh, I'm not going anywhere unless they're paying me. How much is he? Da, 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 da. Oh, that's not enough. Da, da, da. Dude, when I was coming up, 
80% or 90% of the stuff you did in the beginning was no money involved. You were building your craft. You were perfecting your craft. You wanted to be competitive because that's going to pay out in the long run. It's just like college. You pay to go to college. <laughs> right? It's both the, the idea of college is down the line, this, this 200 grand I'm giving them right now is going to be way worth it when I land the, the, the ideal job or career. So, but, so are you the naturally funny guy who could read the phone book and make me laugh. Yeah, I'm I'm just a guy. I'm I'm I like to call myself the most like analytical observationist. Like because that's where the funniest thing is. The funniest thing is always that thing that, that there's a word in comedy, relatability, right? The higher relatability whatever you're talking about has, the bigger the laugh. Right. If people can't relate, you may get a chuckle because they're visualized. Oh, that's funny, you know. But if they relate, you know, dude, if you go up and talk about divorce and all these guys are divorced, you're going to kill. But if you notice, intelligently notice something, that it's like the comic notices there's a 20 under your under your chair. And like, oh, wow, I didn't notice that. Right. But it's true. And like when you notice something about life or about people right. that like oh, everybody's like, wow, I, I, I didn't realize I have a nose in between my eyes. That's, that's so right. And then and 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 then I respect you also because the comic should seem a little smarter. Not not that like an academic who he's like right. lording his intelligence, but like he's he, if he's he's got to be quicker or she's got to be quicker. Right, right. If they're wittier than the audience, and like, oh my God, I trust him. I like her, dude. Like some things just stick out, and they're so matter of factly relatable. I mean, I'm doing a room in Valley Stream last night, and it's it's a it's a nice little establishment. I host comedy, bring the comics through, and this is a guy, Kareem Green. Uh, shout out to Kareem Green. He's on uh, Flatbush Misdemeanors show now, and he does this bit. And not that the rest of the bits are not good bits and he's not a good comedian, but it's the specific bit as a comic. I told him last night, I said, dude, I love that bit. And the bit is just about, you know, women being a hoe, right? So he goes, he says, you know, you ladies, you, you hate that word, you know? And you miss, it's misconception that most women think a hoe is because you how many guys you slept with. And he's like, I'm here to tell you, that's not it. It's not, it's not the number. You know, it's not the number. I'm going to help you unhole yourself. That's what he says, right? The place is crying. <laughs> and ladies, you want to know how to unhole yourself? And they're like, yeah. And he goes, you got to move. <laughs> he said, just that simple. You got wherever you live now that you've been doing your whole business, just got to move. <laughs> he said, because now you can start over new. These people don't know your don't history know you. or what. Right. He's like, and you start over. You're a new lady, whatever you want to be. You're the yoga instructor. Whatever. He says, and, and it's all good. Until you bump into somebody from the old neighborhood. And he said, don't worry about it. They're not going to run up to you and be like, you know, oh, it's the whole. It's, it's, they're not going to do that. It's disrespectful. But they, what they will do is go, oh, you over here now. <laughs> I think that bit. It brings a tear every time. Oh, you're over See, here now. E, e, but it's a point. Even as we talk about you as like a naturally funny guy. Right. There is a craft to it. It's not just being the funniest guy on the block. There is a science to what you're doing. Facts. Can you demystify the science and the craft of it a little bit? Well, the craft is you have to, once you realize who you want to be in comedy, see, that's, 
that's a thing in itself. A lot of people have comedy's been used for a stepping stone to do something else. Right. All right. So right. those people, that's a whole different thing. For a guy like me who just wants that recognition from the audience, from the the comedy uh, executives, uh, from my peers first and foremost. Like I, you know, I watched the Kevin Hart's podcast, Heart to Heart or whatever, and he's talking to Chris Rock and asking him a question about funny, and he refers to me. He was like, dude, I'm on the road, I'm trying to blah, 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 you know, and I'm trying to get those those things popping. And he's like, some guys are just masters of the audience, you know, like talent. Now, mind you, I have nothing to do with this interview. For that to come out, that's the recognition you work hard for and want to do. That's nice. You know what I mean? The craft of it is, see, I figured out a long time ago, I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be the prince of this. Like Prince, Prince didn't care that he sold as much as Michael or did the damn Mike. Did. Prince had his own lane he was creating. He was he was creating it from instruments, from the, you know his brain of creation and all that stuff. But when Prince went to your city or your town and they just threw it up, hey Prince, tickets going to sell ten o'clock. Boom, sold out. Just want to be that guy. I just want to be that guy. The best at the craft that I do. So my thing, I get up there. I try to get to a place, I'm, I'm very good on time, so I try to get to a place early, nine times out of ten, to this, because reading the crowd starts before the show. Okay. Reading the crowd starts, like, half hour, hour before the actual show. I'm seeing people coming and going. So you're watching the warm-up act to see yes. how they are I tonight. to see everything. So when I get, I net, like, like I told you before, I don't know where I'm going to go with it. Sometimes I do a show, and I'm 30, 40 minutes in talking about the place, or some guy or whatever, anything. It could be anything. You just don't know. You know what I mean? And if you're really good at what you do, you're a magician up there. Yeah, absolutely. I can pick on a person uh, in the audience, their clothes, outfit, whatever, and there's nothing wrong with outfit. But after I get done, this person is really questioning this outfit they put together. They come up to you afterwards. Hey, man, this shirt, man, I got this. I'm like, bro, I was... (laughs) I'm not serious, man. There's nothing wrong with your shit. Just comedy. I'm just saying, man, because I paid, you know. It's not personal. You know how black folks are. They, they say the name comedy. of it and where you got it. <laughs> Crazy, Yo, I got this, Balenciaga. Uh, hold on. I want to I, I go back to the crap, but you remind me of the most scared I ever was in a comedy environment. <laughs> that I was, I, I was dating this very light-skinned black girl, <laughs> and her... We we were friends with this brother who was great, and he was dating this white girl right. who was awesome. We loved them. We would hang out with them. Like, yo, Paul Mooney's coming to Caroline's. Let's go see Paul Mooney. They didn't really know anything about him, but we knew. But, like, great. And they sat us, like, right in front. You didn't know? You didn't know. No, but I mean, I, I, you know, I, and I knew the whole Paul time, dude, Paul's going to come over here and just do. I'm like, I'm like, I'm safe because you're here with the white girl. My girl is light, light skin, but your girl is white. So you go, and we were, I didn't think they were going to sit us right in front. And the whole night, I was like, he going to come over here. He's going to say something. He's going to rip us apart. He, 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 he got him a little bit. Man. He was relentless. He was relentless. And it's, here's the thing. Like he said it earlier, like, you know, in the beginning of black comedy or black comedy, everybody's just talking about what they know. And the most relatable thing, that, I guess the cheat sheet, the cheat code, was race. Yeah. You know, back then the che- oh, black people do this, white people do this, black people do this. that was the cheat code. Um so so it was like blue jokes, like sex jokes, cheat code. So but can you get creative with it? Yes. Like can you make it make sense? Not yes. just 
black, white, you know. Sex, yeah, that was no lazy. He's lazy. He's relentlessly oh. like, like no, dude. no, that was lazy. He crushed it. He but always he, crushed. But he would be attacking white people, or then he might call out black people. But he spent a lot of the shit turbo. White people ain't shit, yeah. right? Cleopatra was black. Fuck y'all. <laughs> Perfect example is so Paul worked with Richard Pryor, right? Did a lot of writing over the years with Richard Pryor. Perfect example of, of a different level of greatness. He was giving Rich all that stuff. So if you go back to early Richard and you watch some vintage Rick, Rich did the race thing a lot, but Rich was able to elaborate and make it a next level funny. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just, when you watch Richard, you didn't feel bashed. Right. You watch Paul Mooney, you're too close, you bash. Right. And then when you, well, I'm out of here, I'm a Paul, he gonna hit you all the way out. Uh, look at this son of a bitch. <laughs> hey, that's what they do. Look at them, crackers. That's what they do. They, like, God damn, Paul, let them leave. They, nope. they gave up. They nope. leave it. Nope. Uh, son of a bitch. Leave it. Uh, go ahead, cracker. I'm like, God, Paul, let him leave. No, he was like sitting on high in judgment of white people. Hey, that's shit. That's what and he, he, he would do an hour of comedy, and then he'd do like half an hour of joke jokes. And I never saw anybody like do like lots and lots of joke jokes. Right. But it would crush. All right, and it's a bit like, looked down upon to do joke jokes, but he would make it an art form. You know who does that? Uh, Michael Collier. Uh -huh. Like Michael Collier, it, like this is what I mean by putting your spin on stuff. Like Michael Collier, he has this, uh, I forget what he calls it, because he breaks his setup into these little moments or whatever, and he calls it something, and he explains to the audience that, you know, a lot of these jokes, you know, the people who wrote them and did them, they dead, but the joke shouldn't die with them. Right. Right, you know, right. I'm not putting a joke in the grave. I'm going I'm to tell a joke. Here's a good one. And they'll go and rack off a rack of them, and they're very funny. It's stocky, but they're very funny, and he made is, a niche out of it. Is there one that sticks out to you that you really love? <laughs> with with uh, Collier? No, just just the whole joke joke thing. Oh, man, the joke, the joke joke thing is good. My grandmother, this is funny. My first joke joke I used to close with, my first, I want to say four or five years in comedy. And it came from my grandmother. Now, mind you, I'm I'm raised where we couldn't talk foul or curse around our parents and grandparents. We had to have the utmost respect. So when I started comedy, I tried to do it secretly, right? As secret as I could. How old? Ah, uh, 23, 22? No, 22, I think. 22. So I'm trying to uh, do this thing under the radar. J.B. Smooth had just started a comedy room on 241st Street and White Plains Road in the Bronx, which borders where I live in Mount Vernon. So he's like, hey, come on out, man. Sunday nights, we're going to do whatever. So my mom got wind, and I remember my mom go, oh, we're coming to see you Sunday. You know, Now, mind you, I'm not even officially a comic yet. I'm going to be on the New Jack segment trying three minutes. So this right, is right. My, my debut trying it, right? Right, right. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not. <laughs> and I'm trying to lie. I'm, I'm not going to be there. No, we already seen a fire. They told us you're doing the openers. I said, shit. Right? So I'm like, I said, Mom, listen, if you go, I'm not going to do it. Take my name off the list. He said, well, we going, you know. So now I'm only concerned because the language I'm going to be using, I've never spoke like that in front of my parents and stuff. So I'm like, I Christian household or it's just. not even Christian. Just, just respect. Just like, don't. Yeah. Yeah, just respect. And. 
I, you know, I'm up there and I'm and I'm trying, but I, I'm new. It's my first time, so I, I don't have no gears or no shit. So I just got go plow, and the whole time I know she's out there. I'm like, Fuck, man. And I get off and. I'm thinking she's going to come scold me because last time a curse word came out of my mouth as a kid, I got shit smacked at me. So I'm looking at her coming with her. She's coming with her boyfriend. I'm like, oh, shit. And they were like, yo, it was so funny. That was great. And I'm like, oh, really? Huh? I was like, okay, I'm good. So that was like slowly getting over that hurdle. But my grandmother, we were at a like a barbecue, a cookout, and she goes, come in. And it's just me at this big-ass table. And she's like, heard you doing that comedy thing. You funny? He's like, yeah. What kind of comedy you doing? You dirty? Man? I said, ah, Grandma, I barely did three minutes. I don't really have a kind or no shit, right? So I'm going to give you this one right here. So she gives me the joke, and I'm going to tell it the way I had to kind of like twang it to make it seem like it was real to my situation. So I was like, okay, before I get out of here, I'm going to tell you guys, you know, a joke, you know, because I don't want you taking my other stuff to work, you know, fucking it up. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to give you this one. So I said, you know, so I went to college. And first semester college, I met this beautiful girl. I said, yo, I fell in love. You know, I'm weak at heart. I fell in love. I came home on my break. My mom's in the kitchen. I said, mom, you ain't going to believe this. I, I met this girl at, at the university, uh, uh, Mary Lynn. She's beautiful. I, I said, yo, I, I, I want to marry her. And my mother goes, Mary Lynn, Mary Lynn. Mary Lynn Brown? I said, yeah. What, what's up? She's like, oh, you can't marry Mary Lynn. I said, why? She said, that's your sister. And your father don't know it. <laughs> no, just, no, I go to the, this is how long I answer. I go to the, the father and say, and the father's like, that's your sister and your mama don't know it. Right. I'm like, fuck. Go back to school. A year later, meet another girl. I said, dad, check it out. Okay. Okay. I met Katrina. Katrina. Katrina's beautiful. Brown skin, braids, everything. She she understands me. She gets me. You know, I, th I think I love her. I'm married. He go, Katrina. And he walk out the room. I'm thinking it's all good. He comes back, whoa, whoa. Katrina Lindsay? I said, yeah, Lindsay, what? He's like, ah, her too, you can't marry her. That's your sister. Your mother don't know it, right? <laughs> so now I'm crying. I go back to school. I don't want to be bothered in the cafeteria. I come to this beautiful girl. I'm like, oh, my God. She's singing to me, praises, got me, wooed me real quick. I said, the hell with this. You're going right. You drive, taking a long drive this week into the house. I bust in the door to my father. I said, hey, Dad, I need you to meet her, you know, right here. This is Micah. Micah, Zimbabwe. She from Zimbabwe. He said, Micah, Zimbabwe. Like, from the food tribe? I said, you from the food tribe? Yeah. I said, ah. Can't marry her either. That's your sister too, and your mama don't know. I bust out crying. It's bullshit. <laughs> I'm crying. Fuck, fuck, fuck you, dad. I go in the kitchen. Mom, I met three girls in college. I fell in love, dad. Tell me I can't marry him. Talking about they your sister, and your mother don't know it. My mother said, boy, sit your ass down. He ain't your daddy, and he don't know <laughs> And my grandmother gave me that stock joke. And for like the first year and a half, that was my closer. And the crowd. And you know what's funny is I was playing a lot of colleges. When, you, when you're younger, you go to NACA, and you're playing all these colleges, and it was a singer, man. It never failed. You get I to the end of that thing, I should have seen the cover. I should have seen the cover. I feel I, like I've heard that uh, joke before, but you still got me. But that, yeah, you, you, it's told a certain way. And that's way. how your you grandmother told you? Told it, yeah. That's hysterical. There's a there's always a, a rhythm of three in these sort of jokes. Boom, I can boom. think of yeah. other jokes where, you know, like, uh, I, you know, this thing happened three times, and it's, what what is that? 
Well, that's how a joke was in the early days wrote. A joke was wrote with uh, a setup, a middle, and a punch. That's how jokes written. I set you up, the storyline's in the middle, and then the punchline brings it home. Right. You know, that's how that's the joke writing formula one I mean, by the time you get to the third one, the same thing happens, but it's still funny. Right. And so if you're acting it out, like if I was on stage telling it, I'm going from the super gullible happy kid to the okay, that didn't happen. I still have hope, kid. So the character to the, I just lost it and now I'm crying and you crush me. And I go to tell the mom, and you, whatever you're expecting, and then for her to turn around and go, man, he's a fucking father. And he don't know. You're like, oh. So now, a conundrum. <laughs> but the character grew through exactly. the story. That's it's important to hold in me. Change it, yeah. Right, because Mooney told a joke that my father had told me before I even met Mooney. So you probably heard it with the, the little boy. In the kitchen with mom, with the chocolate cake, the little white boy. He puts the chocolate cake on his face. You heard this, and, and he goes and it, and he turns around uh, when his mother turns around, and he goes, "Look, mommy, I'm black," and she beats him with the spoon, and then she says, "Go in the living room and show your father what you've done." And he goes, "Look, daddy, dad's gonna get it right. Look, daddy, I'm black," and his dad rips off his belt and beats the shit out of him. Now go on the porch and show your grandfather what you done. Now he knows what's gonna happen, so he goes out there. Grandfather sees him and he fucking takes a switch off the tree, beats the shit up. Now go back in the kitchen with your mom. And he goes back in the kitchen with his mom and he said, and his mom says, I hope you learned your lesson. And he said, I sure did. I've been black five minutes and I already hate all you white people. <laughs> and is and is that 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 the rule of three and the character is developing and he learns That's how he doing. learns something and that brings it home. I'm gonna tell you one I love uh Chris Spencer. Mutually, we talked. Yes. So Chris does this thing on his Instagram, jokes my father told me. Right. Right. And he does it, and then he just look does something with the camera, looks away, like when he hits the punchline. So the the one that stood out is he goes, he goes, a man calls home from work. You know, a little boy picks the phone. Hello. He's hey son, put your mother on the phone. And he goes, um, I can't. She's in the room with the TV repair guy, and the door's locked, and some, they're making some crazy sounds, and she's screaming and moaning. He said, what? He's going there, knocking that door, and tell her, you know, your father's in the driveway. So he goes knocking on the door, tell her father's right, comes back to the phone. He said, hello? Did you go knock on the door? He said, yeah. You told him I was in the driveway? He said, yeah. What happened? What'd they do? He said, the guy runs out trying to put his pant, pull his pants up, Falls down the steps, breaks his neck, bottom of the steps. He said, oh, my God, where's your mother? He said, she tried to jump out the window to the pool, but ain't no water in the pool. Break her neck, she died too. He said, damn. Steps, window, pool. Is this 81874? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that coming. <laughs> that was my favorite one he did. Is it pool? Is this eight one? He's not called the wrong house. Got two people killed. Is this hilarious? Two one two seventy fifth lane. <laughs> so sorry. So sorry. Oh my, oh my gosh. god. That's a good one. What's What's the best joke that you thought of that you were like, Nah, I can't tell that anymore. Um, 
All the jokes that they tell me I can't tell no more, I want to tell. Because that's what a comedian is. Like, so there's... Oh, you, if, if there's an open wound, you want to touch bruh, it. Bro, let me tell you something. I had this one joke. Now, you know, every year or two, you go look in, in the archives, you know, on the World Wide Web and try to grab, rip some stuff you did from yonder years to bring it back, maybe freshen it, revamp it, whatever. And it's a good set. I did Comedy Central's Laugh-A-Palooza years ago in Atlanta. I swear to God, one of my best sets ever televised. I loved it. You know, at the time, everyone loved it. So when I go back to looking for this thing, they took it down. I used to see it all the time. And in the last five years, I can't get it. So they took it down because they, I guess the, the two components they thought was uh, not good was the Arab component. <laughs> I, don't know if it, I don't know if it was the, uh, you know, the whole Arab community with the 9-11 stuff and all that. And I don't know if it was probably the politics, too, about the president and everything. You know, Bush was in it at that time. So I do this bit. What was it? I go, uh, oh, I, I talk about 9-11. So, yo, 9-11's crazy. I'm like, you know, only one good thing came from 9-11. <laughs> and I said, that's uh, racial profiling shifted to a different type of nigga. Right, right. I right. said, true, true. they're not looking for the regular Negroes no more. No. You know, it's a no. certain type. You know, they, they got the checkpoints up. And they're coming up, hey, come on, come on, keep it going, keep it moving, keep it moving. And the dude guy says to me, I see the nine millimeter in your lap, keep it moving, let's go, let's go. <laughs> Whoa, Akbar, <laughs> fuck are you going? He's <laughs> like, my mother, what? Get the fuck out the car. Like, <laughs> he's stupid. And I swear to God, that shit com compo compounded with uh, talking about Bush. I said, is it me, or I don't know if you remember this time, we're looking for Osama bin Laden, right? Yeah. We're blaming him, we're looking for him. But they're catching everybody but this motherfucker. And they're kind of trying to impress us with the newspaper. We caught the ace of spade, the yeah. queen of hearts, Nandul yeah. uh, Arif. All yeah. And we don't even know these guys, right? No. So I said, <laughs> I said, they went over there. We're looking for Osama bin Laden. These motherfuckers caught Saddam Hussein. <laughs> totally different thing. I said, they got him in cuffs. And he's like, yo, what, what the fuck's going on? Me and your father, we squashed that. Call your father. So those two components on there straight took it down. Too you know much. What I mean? So is that, yeah, you know, with, given the climate and the change of things. But I love that set right there, and it's crazy. And then, like, sometime we'll be in the bar. Like, me and him was in the bar one night. And it was funny. And I said, yo, this, it happened in real time. And I said, I got to do this on stage. I, I said, half the room's going to fucking hate me, but it's too funny. So we're drinking, <laughs> and this dude is describing somebody, right? Yeah, that retarded motherfucker came over here, and and I'm sitting there like, what? And I'm like, wait, is he no, you know, he look, he got that look, you know, fucking retarded. So the bartender's doing this shit in front of us, you know, wiping shit down. <laughs> and finally, the bartender, three retarders, he can't take it. He said, "Sir, you can't say that." He said, "What?" He said, "You can't say." It. He said, "So what? Retarded." And I'm drunk as shit, right? And I do like, uh, and I look at him and say, yeah, you can't say that no more. You know, we're not saying that anymore. And I said, who told you that? Faggots? He said, what? <laughs> and his face in that moment, because he was stuck as a comedian, you say, yo, something there. Something there. I said, no, I'm just playing with you. know, He's like, that's, that was, that's pretty good. So I said, I got to put it on stage. So I go on stage. I'm on stage in Philly at the punchline. And there's these two white ladies, I think they were a couple, right? But they're sitting front, right here to my right, front to, 
And they're sitting there. So the first five, ten minutes, you could tell they got that apprehensive, like, we don't want to laugh at this shit. And about seven, eight minutes, and I get them. So I get them, and they're gut-busting for the next six, seven minutes. So I take the time to stop because I noticed this. And I go, see? See, you having a good time, right? They're like, yeah, yeah. I say, see? And I'm a real comedian. I do all the inappropriate shit and everything. I'm going to tell you what happened in the bar the other night. And I tell this shit. I just told <laughs> And it's in there. <laughs> and I said, who told you that? The faggot? They won't. I said, see? Everybody having a good time. I mean, I'm not telling that tonight. I'm telling you what happened in the bar. Can't hold me to that. You know, so all those line walking things, because here's the thing to me. Comedy is like, doesn't need a disclaimer because it's self-proclaiming already. When I walk in a comedy club, I know they're going to be talking all type of buku, crazy, funny shit. And I know I'm not going to agree with all of it. You know what I mean? But I'm at least open to know where I'm at and to take it in and consume it and not hold it against you. Uh-huh. Because that's what a comedy club is. It's like going to a rave. You can't be, hey, sir, can you cut it down a little bit? It's a fucking rave. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamin a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from tenderfoot tv campside media and iheart podcasts radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of times <laughs> you are holding a Heineken or a bottle mm-hmm. as you're doing the thing, and you have this whole choreography where you, you're you about to drink it, but then you don't, right? And which is sort of similar to me in, like, Chappelle will have an unlit cigarette and hold it up, and then he doesn't smoke, or he's about to light it, then he doesn't. What is that? That's part of the whole thing, right? But you don't know you're doing it. Oh, oh you're not thinking about you're it. You're not even thinking about it. What happens is because your job is speaking, the number one part of your job to be funny or humorous is timing. Right. So as you're talking, where the laughs pop out at, you might have to, you know, you've got 1.5 seconds to say the next thing or 2.1 seconds, whatever it is. So you, you want to take a sip. But you realize, I got to say this thing right now, because one more beat, it ain't going to hit. You know the beats. So it wasn't until literally about eight, nine years ago, some guy said that to me live in a comedy club. And I was like, what? 
It's like, yeah, man, you fight, man. You always get ready to drink it. You don't drink it. I'll be at home like, oh, drink it. I'll be like, fuck out of here. And I went home and put some tapes on and watched myself. I was like, oh, shit. I didn't drink it. Because it, 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 it creates a, an energy of, what, oh, he's about to drink. But he didn't. So he, and it's kind of like he's so dying to say this. That he's gonna stop drinking right. to say this is so important to me. Like, let me take. I'm gonna take a break from this Heineken, which I haven't sipped yet. But I told you I'm gonna sip it. But because I got, I gotta tell you. Oh, wait a little bit, right? It, it, yeah. it, it creates this energy. Only time I sip now is because since the pandemic, I have this whole tequila bit. You know, talking about tequila is the real vaccine thing. <laughs> so that's my theory. I'm pushing right. <laughs> so. Now I'll go with like a glass like this with the Heineken. So one of them will sit on the stool. So every time I grab that tequila, I'm going to really sip it to make my point of, hey, man, you got to take this, man. It's the real vaccine, bro. You know, I'll say some stupid shit like, you know, hey, man, don't you got to believe me? Look at the numbers. Only two Mexicans got sick. But but you know with the timing, you know you'll hit that note. Yeah. The whole room is belly laughing. Don't want to talk while they're belly laughing because no, that was the that point. To happen, I nailed as it. As soon as they think they're coming down, you got to hit that other thing. That hurts. That hurt. Like JB Smooth, I got that from him. I, 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 JB is like you know my mentor. He's the first guy to ever put me on stage. But what I used to love about JB is when he know he got you gasping for air, he's gonna kill you. He's going to kill you. He's going to purposely try to just, he don't want you. And I agree with that. Energy-wise, who wants to take a break? Once I go see an action movie, bro, where's the action? Let's go. Where's the action? It's an action movie. I don't want to hear them talk and he think he love her. Kill somebody, bro. If you get your timing right, I feel like I have lost control of my body. I'm laughing so hard I'm out of breath. Oh, you're going to pee on yourself. (laughs) I take pride in that. I take I, I I have a disclaimer with some of my shows. I'll be like, listen, go to go to the bathroom first. Don't try to be here, be a big man and spritz on yourself. You know, women pee on yourself all the time. They just wear panty liners. You know, man, we ain't got no panty liner. One little bit of, messed his whole leg up. So were you a funny kid? Yeah. Too funny. Too funny. Were you the kid who could make the teacher laugh in the classroom? Oh no, teachers I grew up in uh in the eighties. Teachers were very serious. You can't get no but comics were quite often like, you know, like the average funny kid can make the kids laugh. The right. kid who's going to grow up to be if a comedian. If I went to school in the 90s, you know what I mean? You but the, I mean? the kid who grows up to be a comedian say, well, I was making the teacher laugh, which is how I got away with telling gl- jokes. But in, that's in all the question. guys that went to school in the 90s. Those are different teachers. Half of them were substitutes that got, that, you know, graduated. <laughs> In the 80s, we had them serious teachers. See, you're big. Some people said they were comedians to keep from getting their ass, or became funny to uh, keep from getting their ass kicked. You were clearly. Same thing for me. I was tall, but I was bony. Thank okay. God I put some weight on. I was bony. I was like this. So, so were you funny to keep from getting the other kids to beating you up? Or like, nah, you're bro, just funny. It was a thing in the projects, bro. It was, humor was up there. You know, yeah. Humor was up there with uh, athletics. Yeah. And and uh and singing. Yeah. So if somebody could sing, because remember singing rap came later. But if you oh. go back to the early 80s, 70s, he was a so man. You was singing, people was like, oh. Sing so that, if you can come into a room and sing just make people again. laugh, yeah, oh do it again. Oh my god. People do that with with comedy. If you find, yo, come here, come here. Tell them something. Get them. You're like, what what am I telling? I came here for a beef patty like everybody else. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's golden crust. But right? you but you said this is your calling. Yeah, you feel it's, it. you you didn't say I want to do that. You felt pulled into this. So yeah. you had to be just easy at making people laugh in your real life to be like, oh, I, I mean, you, you felt it pulling you in? You knew it. Like what happens is a calling doesn't wait till you're of age, so to speak, right? A calling is, is a pull early. So early on, I'm feeling the pull. The only thing I would say that took as long as it did is I'm processing it in my own brain and I'm like, for one, visual, right? Everybody that I see doing this thing called stand-up comedy looks like an older person to me as a kid. Sure. I'm like, oh, okay, you got to be older to do this. Who are you seeing? You know, I'm, you're seeing the Priors, you're seeing the Flip Wilsons, you know, everybody that was on TV. Was older. It, yeah, and even when you went to your grandmom's uh, record collection and pulled out uh, Millie Jackson and Mom's Mabley and Esther, all those people were, again, on the cover, they're older. Red so Fox. I put a plan together. I said, when I retire, I'm going to do this music thing. I'm going to retire from music early in my 30s, and I'm doing that comedy thing for because I thought it was a hobby, too. I didn't think they were making money off it. I didn't know it was a career. So heck, come Def Jam. Again, beginning of the renaissance. So you watch Def Jam as an amateur or as a, as a civilian yeah. and was like, oh, I could do that. Look at all these young faces. Did that Def Jam now. motivated you? Like, this? Oh, yeah. I could do that? Yep, I could do that. I'm like, oh. So they had auditions. And I went to the one in Jersey at a Peppermint Lounge. A, a See, real Def Jam thing. looked scary as fuck. I, it was. The audience was like Apollo rough. Yeah. And you had dope comics coming out there slaying. It was scary. If I saw a fucking Bernie Mag talk about it, I ain't scared of you, motherfuckers. <laughs> I'm like, I can't do that. What? But, but see, if, you, if you're there, it's different. First thing is like Def Jam, nothing can scare me more than my first TV taping, which was the Apollo. Apollo, even though I did good and got a stand on, this first time being on TV, standing ovation for a little six, seven minute out there, right? And I'm still out back sitting on the stoop about to shit my pants. I did good. Joe was about to perform. MC Light's about to perform Roughneck. Joe's back there practicing with his dancers and everything. And they come over to me on the stoop like, dude, you fight. Oh, you killed that. And I still couldn't even enjoy it. I'm sitting there shaking on the stoop like I like they threw tomatoes at me. But I killed it. I stood him up, which was rare because yeah. this is the boo days. This ain't the the happy Apollo. This ain't the <laughs> all the Asians. But then, right, right. No, this is get your fucking ass. This is those guys. So to do that good was a lot. So now to come from that, that was the highest peak of fear. So to go to Def Jam, it was really just like being there, taking it all in. You don't want to screw it up because it's TV. These are the things that's going to keep chipping away and catapulting you where you're going to go. Bernie, perfect example. We talk about Bernie ain't scared, you motherfucker. A lot of people got to know the story. Like, Def Jam thought of everything. This is how it always works. You think of everything but that little thing you should have thought of. It's right in your face. So because this is the first time they're taping, they're just happy to be taping. They're remembering stuff like, okay, it's wintertime. You take your coat off, tuck it under your seat. We don't want, when people watch it, we don't want to have a seasonal look. Just wanted to be. So tuck your coats. I'm like, damn, they thought of everything. They didn't think of the main thing. You're taping in New York. This audience is special. New York's special. We've they seen a lot. Right. We're we're spoiled. So the guy that went up there before Bernie Mac? Do you, know, do you remember who the that was? Shit out of him. Who who Nobody was? remembers who that was. Do you he, remember who that was? He, he left the continent. 
What? He, What's his name? Everybody's talking about uh, Elon Musk going to the moon and everything. He went first. <laughs> After that shit. Wait, what happened? He got booed off like some Apollo shit? So here's the thing. You're supposed to have signs. You're supposed to have signs like, you know, like, you know, the old-fashioned applause, applause. or whatever. No booing. No booing. Nobody did that. So they just this guy goes out there. Yeah. And another thing. The fuck? Boo! Right? So the place is crazy. Thunderous bulls. So everybody back there, like, what the fuck? You were there that night. Yeah. They said, somebody said, some runner, they had a runner, they go down to the thing, get some construction paper, some markers, blah, blah. They literally had to paper the markers and do that shit and come back out like, like no boy. So after the place was in an uproar, Bernie's next. So Bernie and, and, and was shit to kick a pre and was, they get it together. Was he actually scared? No, but he was letting them know, like, I'm not that guy. And he not. Bernie was the top comedian coming out of Chicago. Like, the top. Him, Cheryl Underwood. There was nobody funnier, you know, in that day. He, he was the top. They went and got about everybody you, top. You'd be scared before you go out. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he was, like, regular nervous, but Bernie was a beast. He was. You see what he did with that? He, he did that. Whatever he had prepared, he threw a shut the window and said, I'm going with the elephant in the room. So he come out there, eh. Scared of you, motherfucker. Don't give a fucking. So, so what he did was take bits and pieces of jokes, like one-liners, and and fucking use it. And say, I ain't scared of you, motherfucker. Think I'm scared of y'all? Shit. I take my dick out in here. This whole room get black. Right. Jig it. Right. Start. Right. 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 So he said little right. shit like that. Everybody. Oh, oh, oh. So after five, six, seven minutes of that, everybody they loved him. And it was not. I mean, Same thing with Adele Givens with the Tic Tac thing. Those oh lines was god. vintage. Oh my god, the Tic Tac yeah. thing. But no, he was so aggressively savage and hyper confident that you you wanted that, right? Like yeah. if you go in front of a black audience and you're not sure, you're gonna get fucked up. Yeah, you can't He's like, it. I am super sure that I am funny and I'm gonna slay y'all and I ain't scared of you, motherfucker. And the, the whole interplay with Kid Capri. Was dope, yeah, right? But he kept saying, "I ain't was... scared of you, motherfuckers." And that was it. That was dope. And, and New York ate it up because they know they New York. You're Chicago. You're what we call a baby New York. Philly and Chicago are like our baby New York. So it was like we respect this motherfucker. Oh, hell and yeah. he funny. And the guy you before know? had left comedy. Left the the fucking globe. <laughs> this guy is running a comedy club on Mars. Is <laughs> a two crater minimum. That's very funny. A two crater bit of them. Wouldn't you leave though, no, bro? Even to this day, what's his name? When we bomb, we leave. you know his name. I know. I'm telling you, nobody remembers this guy. It, you know this guy. But everybody bombs. Yeah, but there's protocol to this shit. Like that feels so bad. Let me tell you something. One of my best dudes I like is up in Rochester. This African guy, right? His name is Sidney Sir. We call him, you know, uh, African King or whatever. But this guy. The reason me and him are friends, he, I was in Rochester doing a show, and he was like, yo, can I get five minutes? I was like, no problem. Goes up there, stink it up, you know, tough crap. The next night I'm in Syracuse at the Fun Bone, and this guy goes, yo, I see you at the Fun Bone in Syracuse, and can I do five minutes? And I'm staring at him like, nice guy, I don't want to, I really want to say, are you fucking crazy? So, so I was like, eh, yeah, come by, man, i see what I could do. I didn't think he was going to come. This motherfucker shows up. And he's, it's Joe Torrey's on my bill that night. We're all in the green room, and he's in there. He's like, what would it look like? What you think? I said, oh, I might be able to. 
So I go up there and I'm hosting and I start and I'm like, you know what? Got this guy, man, Rochester, boom, 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 African, boom, boom. Give it to him. I'm going to give him five minutes. Give it up for Sydney, sir. You know, and I go, they play the music. He comes up. This guy fucking bomb worse than the night before. <laughs> and this is this is a big comedy club. It's funny, boom, right? I go up there. I do about 10 minutes on how bad he did. And it's like, <laughs> and they're, they're in tears or whatever. So I go in the green room. And I'm shocked that this dude is still there, right? Because normally a comic bomb, they're out of the building. So I'm like, hey. And he said, man, damn, you killed me up there. I was like, you're the elephant in the room. I had to. I said, what are you still doing here, though? He's like, I don't give a fuck. That's over with, man. I'm, I want to watch Joe Torrey. I want to watch your show. I was like, all right, cool. Joe Torrey gets up. This dude's still in the green room. He goes, so what's the name of the place with the after party? I said, after party? <laughs> you're going to the after? He said, yeah, why not? Well, you do know that these same people are going to the after party, right? Who, who want to be around these people that booed me tonight? I don't want to be hanging with these guys. He said, T, that's over with. I'm done. And I just stared at him because for the first time in 20 years, somebody did that. And I was like, dude, you know what? Your drinks are on me. I respect that because that's not what I, it, I've come accustomed to. People bomb. They don't want to be there. They want to go. The luck you have in New York City is so many stages. And if I go to the cellar at 8 o'clock and I eat it, God forbid, I eat, I bomb. There's about 10 other places I can shoot to real quick and try to redeem myself and feel better so I can sleep at night. Because if that's the only thing and I bombed and I didn't get to fix it, that's a long night, bro. That's restless. You you go home and what? Well, this is, can't this, sleep. Is, this is where Unabombers are born. <laughs> you know, you, you too much... When you don't sleep and that brain going, bro, this is where all those weird people are born. Like, that we go, why would somebody do that? They didn't sleep. That's how they're born. They didn't sleep. You and the bombers, you know what I'm saying? Uh, the Tiger King, all those people. <laughs> Tiger King, this guy. How do you get better as a comic? Stay on stage. You can't stop. You have to stay on stage as much as you can. Repetition, uh, uh, we call you know, those reps. We call them reps like... You want, we call it working out. You know, like somebody texts me today, like two, three people. Hey, is your spot open? I want to work out some new stuff or whatever. So you get on stage and you stay on stage. When when you do it a lot, the stage becomes second nature. So it's nothing to get on it because I'm always on it. You know what I mean? I might have to tweak a light or tweak a, a sound, bring it up a little bit or something, but it, I'm no stranger to it. So I'm not in a strange place. So, you know, you're more automatic. You know what I mean? That's how you get better. That's how you stay better. Now, when you stop, it's like roller skates, bro. You ever stop roller skating for a little while and then try, think you're going to go back on West Side Highway? Grand opening, grand closing. <laughs> Where is he? We've just seen him on the skates. He's in the Hudson River. Couldn't work the brakes. Didn't <laughs> <laughs> you know he had stoppers. <laughs> no, but I remember, I remember there was a period when rock was coming up. And then it kind of slowed, right? SNL, and then it kind of slowed down from for a while, right? And then when he got more political, he went to the 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 highest level, right? He sort of rocketed upward. But there was a period when he was grinding in there. Yeah. And he had a mic and a backdrop and a stage in his house. So when he wasn't doing it at the cellar or whatever, he's in his house doing it. Right. So he's constantly practice always but see rock go back to his method what i loved about him was 
Once he started to, you know, this is even before Netflix, when HBO was the place, right, for the specials. Chris Rock would say, let's say HBO, oh, we're going to shoot, they get the you know logistics down. We're going to shoot in Charlotte at Ovens Theater December 5th. And it will be like September when he get this information. This dude will go out at almost every night of every week from September to the day he shoots working this material. Right. He don't care that he's holding a piece of paper, it's written down, he don't care. And the most polite guy, he would come, I, I was running a Boston comedy club for 15 years. And whenever you could always tell me he got a special in the bag because he's hitting every spot. And he'll come in, polite, hat down. You don't even know it's him. And one guy said to me, T, Chris, uh, Chris wanna know, can he go up? I'm like, Chris who? I'm like Chris Rock. No, that's like Chris Rock. He's right there. He's like this. I'm like, Chris, what's up? You ain't saying that. I don't want to disrupt it, man. You know, if you got a few. I said, how much time do you, you need? What do you want? I'm going to work out about 25, 30 minutes. No problem. When you want to go up? Throw one more, and then I'll go up. Okay, cool. And when guys like that came to your club, you go to the, whoever else you got in your lineup, and you let who know that you got a bump. A few of you guys that got a bump. You know, if I had three guys doing 10 minutes a piece, that's 30 minutes. You three got to go so he can do 30 minutes and work his stuff out. Because the guy that paid $5 to get into this little hole in the wall is going home amazed. Yeah. And I, they coming back yeah. to my spot again next week. Of course. So guys like him when he came, true story. Damon Wayans comes, right? First of all, when I say small, like Boston Comic goes small, you squeeze in 140 in there, right? So one Sunday, we did Sunday night. So one day, my partner calls me. He's like, hey, uh, the agent, somebody's agent called, and Damon's in town, and he wants to do a spot. I'm like, Damon who? Damon Wayans. I'm like, fuck yeah, of course. Tell him come through. All right, we'll let him know. Damon Wayans, a white limo pulls up. You know, probably I probably doubted this shit the whole time. Hey, Damon ain't coming here. White limo pulls up. My boy Will runs out there. Wendell comes half down there talking about my bone. He's like, all right, so uh, he's ready whenever you're ready. I said, okay, let him know I'm going to throw one up, seven minutes, and then we'll introduce him. So I no problem. He's going through a divorce. Damon Williams, when I said, you know, I, I would always do this thing when I got like an extra celebrity comic. I'd be like, okay, people, you're in for a treat. This is why you come here. You never know who's going to pop by here. Best show you ever get in your life for five bucks. Ladies and gentlemen, too many credits to mention right now. But we all know him and love him. Damon Wayans in this motherfucker. Damon comes into play. <sighs> Roars. It takes at least seven, six, seven minutes for the, the clock to stop. They can't believe this shit. Little ass, the stage was this big. Is this table. Damon's standing there. Everybody, oh. Bombed. <laughs> Died. We had, we had to... You know, talk him down from going to Mars. This dude, 20 minutes, about 20, 25 minutes. But because he is who he is and we respect who he is, nobody even thought about heckling or But he booing. bombed because he's trying to write and create he's the next thing. He's trying to create thing. the next thing. So he's, he's panning yeah. for gold. Yeah. And there and might he, be. And it's about his divorce. He's trying to. Find that thing. How do yeah. I talk about this? He's not, I mean, most of us encounter, when we encounter somebody on HBO or Netflix, they are fully polished and ready to go. Right. right? You if don't you, see the work, right? Yeah, if you go to the clubs and not even the Carolines, but the Comedy Cellars, the Bostons, like right. the smaller, then you'll see people, I am developing. I'm not going to kill you for 60 minutes because I'm not done. People I'm, don't know that. I'm making it now. Yeah, and this dude, to his credit, 
Do you know this little hole in the wall spot? This is what I mean by if you don't have an opportunity to cover it up and fix your brain, you'd be up all night. He wouldn't leave New York. Two days later, the agent calls again. Damon is still here. He didn't like his set. He wonder can he come back this Sunday? Absolutely. Of course. Bombed again. <laughs> but he's not ready. You, everybody else <laughs> can do the song from a year ago, five years ago, right. 10 years ago. Let me show you the movie that I did. I'm going to redo this. You can't do do that joke you did two years ago, three right. years. What <laughs> joke? There's, there's no, there's no re, you know That's what I mean? Fact. That's a fact. I get Gary Goldman. I could listen to that Trader Joe's story, that 20 minute story. I could listen to it over and over. He ain't going to tell it again. He's like, it's recorded. Go listen to it. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I got to keep moving forward. I saw Damon when I was 18. I grew up in Boston. And I remember he was coming. I don't know how I knew who he was, but I got two of my friends. Let's go to the comedy I love Damon. thing. And, and, and I saw him at Paul Mooney's funeral. And I reminded him of this. He's like, I don't even remember. Because he used to do crazy? something called oppressions. He's like, other comics do impressions. I do oppressions. And he'd be like, here's a black man working at IBM, and then he's sweeping. <laughs> here's a black man on the, on the weekend, and he's, like, behind bars. Can I get out now? Like, I'm like, and I remember he crushed That's for, hilarious. like, 30, 45 minutes. That's hilarious. And he, when he came off, he walked past where I, was, where I was sitting. And I was like, yo, that was great. And he looked at me with full gratitude and humility, like, yeah. Thank you so much. Like, that really means that I'm like a kid, you know? And I'm there. I mean, and he was, like, deeply, like, mm -hmm. true. Not like I'm the fucking man. Of course I crushed. But, like, thank you so much. That means so much that you said that. And I, I never forgot that he, like, it, it, was, it was great. Because it's the kind of job. It's the kind of job where no matter how good you are, we, we, we're such a backwards, bizarro country where we would, we would much quicker approach you because you bombed, then approach you with accolades of how good you did. Right. So th that number's smaller. It could be a room of 300 people. But you I come off and you did good. 10, you know 20. you did good because you heard them. Right, but still, the, the, the physical accolade, the actual presentation of you coming and saying, bruh, oh, my God, that was great. That does something than just me. Me knowing is nothing. You I can think it. I'm the. Got to hear that, it. That, I can think I'm the shit. Whatever. I need. You need to hear it. We have kids. Our kids need to hear it. Oh, of course. I saw Chappelle working out at the Comedy Cellar long time ago, fifteen years ago, something. And he was funny even then. He did not bomb, even though you could tell he's working clearly out. practicing right. because he did a bit, and then there was a long bit of crowd work that wasn't really going anywhere, and then he worked into another bit. Right. Like So he's clearly just like doing sketching. There was no theme to it, but he did this one bit that I could never forget about. Like, because Tiger Woods had just got caught cheating, and he was like, that's the least of it. The guy's so rich, he could be like, yo, can you train an alligator? <laughs> To bite my balls with just the right amount of pressure so it don't crush them, but it feels, and he's like, you could, how much would that cost? I can pay that. How long would it take? Three months? Oh, no problem. And it, it, it and this is a whole five minute vision of this conversation and it, and it was, it, it was so visual. It was so. Yeah, his, his brain 
is is definitely something special. The, the funniest thing I've heard him say to me, he does this joke about, he talks about all these crime shows and shit, right? And he's like, you know, they always come in there to see us out, whatever, they come in there. He says, is it me? Or they, they always find semen, right, somewhere. <laughs> he said, it makes you wonder. He said, like, are they finding it? Or are they looking for it? He's like, well, if I go, boom, this place is a wreck. Check it for semen. <laughs> That line is crazy. He does this to the stove. He's like, yeah. He used to do a bit about about somebody sent a tape to him of him having sex with another girl. Right? And he'd be watching the tape and he's like, oh my God. Like, you know, they have this evidence on me. And he called the FBI and they're watching the tape with him. And he's like, "What do you think?" And he's like, "And they're like, well, we think it's gonna be hard to find who get. No, no, no. What do you think about stroke?" <laughs> <laughs> and there's other parts to it, but I'm like, he's in the midst of the shit. He's like, "But do you think? But I'm good at fucking, right? What do you think? What do you think?" <laughs> That's is hilarious. He, is he the best ever at stand up? Uh, Chappelle? Yes. Not for me. Uh, in my opinion, prior. He's dope, but I, I think the only thing that holds him back, in my opinion, from being the greatest ever is he is an acquired taste. He is Chappelle is like the Guinness acquired. Stout of comedy. Like really? everybody don't drink Guinness Stout. So you got people that they may think he moves too slow for, or maybe he is too political. They got their little hang ups with it. I ain't got nothing wrong with him. He's just my GOAT greatest of all time. I, I would have to break it up gender wise. As a man, I'm I'm gonna give it to Pryor. Yeah, it's it's tight with Pryor and Red Fox, but I would give it to, the edge out to Pryor, and then for the females, Carol Burnett. Interesting. Carol Burnett is just takes it way way, back. way ahead of her time. Uh, you know, she she reminds me of Ray Allen. You know, she don't miss the jump shot. Bro. But Red Fox is your number two. Yeah, Red was Red was special. Red was he was a ball of entertainment on his stage. That's who. Uh, Bernie kind of modeled himself behind. Uh huh. So, uh-huh. like, if you was if you frequent Chicago, Red was known for these uh, these shows with, you know, he was the first like one comedian up there with a whole live band, seven eight piece behind him, and a whole lot going on. And then he comes out and does an hour or two of whatever he does. And then Bernie picked after Red Fox. Bernie picked that up in Chicago, started doing the thing, the Bernie Mac show, same thing, you know, live band and steppers and and dancers and singers and all that. And then when he grabs that mic and goes to do his thing, he's up there hour or whatever doing his thing. Um, so the, those two are, you know, right up there. Um, I think Robin Harris. Woo! I think he, I think he gone to school. Definitely soon. in the Red Fox he was about school. To, yeah, he was about to, bruh, he was about to show everybody. And I Baby think that was kids. just like, he was that diamond in the rough that he was there for a minute. Like, yeah. see, people don't know. If you didn't live in L.A., he looked like a guy that just popped up in house party. Like, oh, this guy's funny. No, but he was—he put that work in. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, and just dope, man. Like, like ladies, I, I love—I love females who can, you know, transcend and hang and swing the bat with the big boys. Sure. You know like what I mean? Who, who for you? And that's your mom's Mableys. Yes. That's your, uh, you know, like I said, Carol Burnett. You know, you got a slew of them out there. Like Cheryl Underwood was like that for a minute. I mean, now she's you know, transcended into the talk show thing. And she's kind of, if you call it a book, and now she's kind of, she know how hard stand-up is. 
I respect that the greats respect how hard it is. Like yeah. look at Eddie Murphy. He's been he's been tinkering on the on the line for a decade now. He wants to come back, but he he respects how hard it is. And he and when you got a body of work like a Eddie Murphy, yeah, you're always gonna be compared to that. Of course. So he can't get a fresh slate. And he's got to update what he does a little bit, right? Because his style was be all great for then. Yeah. But you can't quite do some of the things. But I mean, like he. Well, just, you can't um, foo foo. You he, can't bring that. Back. No, you can't. But he he just told some stories that you could tell right now. I mean, the the barbecue story. You know, so and many, like, this one Janet fell Jackson. down the stairs, and he's you know he's just caught on fire. All that you can do that shit. <laughs> well, the story part is good. It's just that other stuff, that that opinionated stuff of, you know, the, the climate that we don't live in no more. The thing that the to me, when you can tell a great story, mm-hmm. that elevates you to me. That's what made Richard the GOAT. Richard would tell a fantastic story about Africa, about being born, about the wino in the hood. Mudbone, mudbone. He was incredible. Um, You know, Chappelle will hit you with a great story. Great storyteller. You know, when you you can string it, that's the thing that fucking kills me. But if you can do all the styles, let's just say, like, you know, comedy styles are like kung fu. You know, this guy's doing the crane. Uh-huh, this guy's uh-huh. doing the snake. You know, what is that, the mantis? You know, comedy's like that. So you got the guys that can tell the stories. You got the one-liners. You know, you got the crowd work guys. When you get that guy that can do it all. And take it, perfect example, God, God bless his soul, just passed away. My man, David Arnold. Ooh. David Arnold's last special. I had to call him. I had to call him and say, bro, hashtag brilliant, brother. Like, he did it all in that special. He, I don't know how long it took to prepare for, but he gave you the classic stand-up. He gave you the story, the true story, by the way, of you know his story, but he went into it. Then he gave you the characters. He pulled a chair out. He played his grandfather, biological father, uh, the adopted father. Like, he did all of that. And only to come back out of that, back into some stand-up, stories, one-liners, zingers, you know, real POV stuff. And he just took you on that whole ride of all those styles we can do of comedy in full circle. And at the end, brought out his two daughters and his wife on the end. They said, thank you. And then it kept going with outtakes around the house. You know, him talking to his daughters, seeing where their heads at, talking to the wife, preparing everything, giving the flowers to the the father that adopted him, even though it wasn't his biological father. But when I talk about a complete encapsulation of the whole thing and all the many styles the comedy has, he did it. What do you think about people who do the weirder sort of stuff, like Andy Kaufman, Kristen Kristen Schaal kind of picked up that mantle, that weirdo shit that's kind of pushing the audience of like, (laughs) right? can I listen to Kristen Schaal saying I want to ride a horse 70 times in a row? Dude, comedy is, there's no, that's the thing. There's no lines to this shit, man. You, people should be able to make you laugh at, by any means necessary. I, I was at the Garden one night playing the Garden with Tracy Morgan. It was the April Fool's Comedy Jam. And his regular jokes was not fucking working. Like, it was so, you know, but that's Tracy. Tracy hit a miss guy. So it was like real, one of those nights where everybody's like, like, the most, <laughs> yeah. And this motherfucker, I don't know what, how he got there, but this <laughs> motherfucker started talking about Sade. 
So now, anybody knows Tracy Morgan, Tracy Morgan is the walking epitome of the hood project. Yeah. <laughs> All that shit, right? Yeah. So I don't know where he started talking about Sade, and I'm laughing because I'm like, look at this fucking fake gangster hood dude talking about, I love me some Sade. And I know it. It's, I don't know fucking where. Your love is king. And I'm like, it's 6,000 people. Look, and he's really singing the lyrics, and he's just he's feeling himself, and he knows the words. And he goes down on his back to the floor. And then, oh, y'all love this kid. Yo, the place is in fucking tears. He went from down here to up here, and we're all in tears. And when he got off, I just said, I said, you're a stupid motherfucker. He said, what do you mean? I said, sing a little bit for me. And I'm in the, <laughs> I'm in the dressing room listening to Sade's greatest hits from Tracy Morgan. You don't get no better than that. I said, you know the lyrics. He's like, dude, that's my shit. Name one. I said, dude, I, <laughs> I was just throwing names out. He's like, ah, like, I'm like, this dude's serious. But, but moments like that is that weird shit that, you know, I, I always say, I call them in the moment. There's all these things that happen that you didn't plan for, and it's in the moment, and it be it may or may not be funny as hell. Like, you was talking about the time you, uh, with the light-skinned girl and, and the, yeah. the boy had the white girl. I'm on stage hosting the Boston. Funny comedian named Franz Cassius comes in. Now, Franz, you, you you don't get no blacker than Franz. You really got to go by the equator to get black as Franz, right? But he loves white women. I know this. The other comedians, we know it. We all, we, we, you know, community, we know. But never in a million years would he, we think he would strut through this packed comedy club with all these black women. He's like, so here's the door. He got walked through all 150 people to go back here to the bar thing to get a drink because they they serve you. So he's gonna walk through. I don't know what the fuck I was talking about hosting that night, but I was like, yeah, you know. And and all I said, you know, everybody's looking at me, so you know they look looking, and I'm looking. They get halfway through, and I said, this nigga here. <laughs> and when I said that, the place erupted. Right. So now. And and here's the thing, timing is everything. It's you know during the OJ years, right? So this thing is like extra high beam on you, right? So I'm like, <sighs> the trial is going on, and you do this shit tonight. Like I'm just talking shit, right? Ten minutes on it. I mean the fucking rooms. Okay, let's get back to the show. Bring up the next comp. I go downstairs because there's a bar downstairs. Now mind you, I'm just playing, being stupid. I ain't thinking twice about it. I'm done. I did it. I'm done. I don't even think about it. Show's moving on. This motherfucker's downstairs at the bar. He leaves the, the white girl at this end of the bar to come to my end. He says, give me a second. He come over there and say, hey, man, good to see you. Come out, right? He said, no, no, no. I'm doing this shit. He said, no. What the fuck was that? <laughs> I said, what the fuck was what? And I'm really, like, not trying to be funny, like, but that's how matter-of-factly I do comedy. I can say some shit about you. Don't think about it. I'm on to the next. He's like, that shit upstairs. It fucking blew me up. I'm cutting through. Girl, she's in town from such and such. You fucking embarrassed us. I said, she speak English? He said, no. That's so low. I said, you're upset. Yeah, but why would you do that? I said, come on. That was funny. You're a comedian. You know that was funny. I had to take advantage of the moment. He said, man, I, I don't understand how you did that. She now got to go over here. I said, and do what? She don't know what the fuck I said unless you fucking translated it, bro. Just tell her I said, I liked her shirt. <laughs> and the people's like, yeah, nice shirt. But that's interesting because you're like, yo, I got to take advantage of the moment. It's I'm doing the job. Yeah. 
He didn't agree with that. What's my mantra? What is my slogan? It's Don't just take comedy. none of this shit personal. It's just comedy. But he didn't see it that way. A lot of comedians can't take a joke, though. That's a problem. So how does that resolve when he's like, you went beyond the line and you're like, no, this is the zone. You walked through the room. I called it out. That's it. I mean, he was upset for the night. I mean, what are you going to do? Fast forward down the line, you know, I had to choke him anyway. <laughs> so that was a whole other issue, but that was you know, that was a joke-stealing thing, you know. Why I'm, did you have to choke? Oh, because he stole your joke. Yeah, man. And, and you know what made it worse is when I approached him. <laughs> it, you, know, you know, sometimes the answer's worse than the problem. Right? Oh, yeah. So oh, I, hell yeah. So I, here's the, let me paint the picture. He's at Caroline's. On, on, matter of fact, it was that night, the Urban Night, Ed Lover, whatever. And I had a show in the city, and I was done early. So I said, let me go by Caroline's, have a beer, sit in the back, enjoy the show. I'm sitting in the back, and he goes into this bit. And I'm like, where's he going with this? And he's verbatim doing a bit. And I'm like, so now I can't take it. I go back out in the lobby, and I, I can't watch no more of the show. And I'm... And I'm I'm, I'm battling with myself. Do I say something? Do I just he leave just it alone? Did your I bit. said, but I can't, you know, and it's eating at me. And then as I'm thinking of it, I hear the music come on. So I mean, he said, good night, he's done. He comes through the kitchen and I'm standing there and I'm like, it's, oh, what's up, T? Like this. And as I dap him up and hold his hand, I'm like, hey, um, you just did my shit up there. And he was like, what? I said, you just did my joke, my bit. He's like, I did your joke. What joke? And I told him which one it was, and this motherfucker with a straight face said, oh, I stole that from somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> and I just choking this motherfucker. <laughs> it's not the answer. It's the wrong answer. <laughs> I just start choking him. I was like, yo, you got to be kidding me. Like, how is that the answer? <laughs> you know, you broke in my house. You broke in, came in through the back. Door. I, I, I came in through the window. <laughs> You fucking broke in my house, bro. <laughs> yeah, but you said the back door. Not true. I called the other house. Yeah. <laughs> Is this 818-77? No? Sorry. But that's comedy, man. Thanks so much to Talent for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jennifer Brown. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... 
Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.